Let's take our Bibles tonight and open up to the book of Judges this evening. Judges chapter number 3. Some of you are getting a little worried tonight. Don't worry, Seth, I'm not going to use this on you this evening. Wondering what in the world is this big pointy stick? Well, Judges chapter 3, tonight we are looking at an, the next in our series on the book of, in the book of Judges, the next judge. One of the individuals in Scripture who gets perhaps the least amount of screen time. In fact, he's only mentioned in two verses. One that we'll read here and then another verse in chapter 5 of the book of Judges. And it's really kind of a shame because with what we do read about him, it kind of leaves us wanting to know more. But the Holy Spirit chose to include only this little bit of information from Judges chapter 3, verse 31. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us tonight as we look at your word to understand and apply the truth that we will see. Help us to take encouragement, even from a verse of scripture like this, with maybe just a little bit of detail. But Lord, it illustrates for us so wonderfully some very important biblical truths. So, Lord, I pray that you would impress it upon us tonight. Teach us what we need to know and, and change us into what we need to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shamgar. Not much is known about Shamgar other than what is mentioned right here in Judges 3 and verse 31. We are told that he was the son of Anath. Do you know who Anath was? Neither do I. In fact, there is no other mention of Anath in Scripture other than in chapter 5 and verse 6, which we'll see in a moment. He has an unknown father. Did you notice which tribe it says that he came from here? Neither did I. It doesn't tell us what tribe he's from. Could have been any one of the twelve. We don't know. He's from an unknown tribe. The only fact that we know, facts I should say, about Shamgar is his name, who his father was, that he was a judge of Israel. That's from the last phrase when it says he also delivered Israel. It's the idea of there being a judge and a deliverer, a savior. And his one feat of valor that the Holy Spirit included for us is that on an occasion... He slew 600 Philistines with something called an ox goad. Now to us, in modern culture, modern farming techniques with tractors and all those kinds of things, uh, most of us do not have an ox goad laying around the house. In fact, to know what it was, we have to look it up 
and we have to uh, do some research and find out what did the ancient peoples use as ox goads. Well, what is a goad, first of all, uh, in general? A tool that, a goad is simply a tool that was used to get an animal to go where you want it to go. A prod. They have cattle prods nowadays. I understand, though, that a lot of them are electrified. And so uh, it's not as much poking as it is zapping, you know. You just decide, do you want this cow original or extra crispy, right? Just uh, zzz, and on in the trailer it goes. But used to be they would use a long, pointy stick known as a goad. Like I said, we don't usually have them laying around the house. I know I didn't. Um, but thankfully, I was able to find this ox goad. This is the original ox goad that Shamgar used. I found it at a Goodwill in Tennessee in a trunk that Jack Hiles brought back from Israel. (laughs) Just kidding. I made it this afternoon. I spent minutes working on it. (laughs) They say an ox goad was about eight feet long. This is almost exactly eight feet. But this is not a regular ox goad. Brother Matt, this is a high-capacity assault ox goad right here. Eight feet long. On one end, you have a very pointy part, which would have been used if you were using it around the farm to poke the animal in the backside to get it going where you wanted it to go. On the other end, they tell us, they would flatten it out and they would make kind of a, uh, just a, a spade of sorts and they would use that end for scraping the dirt off of the plow, the mud or anything that might get stuck on it. Now, Sometimes ox goads would have metal points on them, um, and they would have metal spades on the other end. But at other times, it would have been just made out of plain wood like this. Now, to be honest, when it comes to just general appearance and weaponry, I mean, this is a decent kind of a weapon. If you were walking down the street and you saw some guy walking up with this, you might cross the street and go on the other side. However, if you called the police and they showed up at your house and instead of sidearms, they had ox goads, that might be a different story, right? As far as weapons goes, it's really not what we would choose as our first weapon. And in Shamgar's day, it wasn't any different. It's not like people went around armed with ox goads all the time back then. So why... Why did he use an ox goad? Well, let's, let's, before we get to that in particular, let's back up just a little bit and let's talk about what we do know, what we can surmise about Shamgar and his story. First of all, the timing of Shamgar's story here um, comes at some point immediately after um, the, uh, the second judge. You remember Ehud, um, who, uh, who was uh, famous for being left-handed, and for killing King Eglon. The Bible tells us in verse number 30 that after or when he judged Israel, there was a period of peace of 80 years. That's a long time for Israel to enjoy peace. Verse 31 says that after him, there arose this guy, Shamgar. Now, turn over to chapter 5 and verse number 6. Here's the other reference that we have of Shamgar. Uh, it says, in the days, now, by the way, this is the song of Deborah. And we're going to talk about Deborah and Barak and Jael in the weeks ahead. But uh, for our purposes right now, we're just 
taking this one verse, the Song of Deborah, she says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. Now from this verse, again we know there's a reference of Shamgar, it is also possible that he was a contemporary of Jael, Deborah, and Barak. Though we don't know for sure, he could have been right before them or there could have been some overlap there. Another thing that we can surmise about him is that he was probably a farmer. Now why would we think he was a farmer? Because he had an ox goat, all right? You know, a lot of Bible study does not require you to have advanced degrees. It just, it's just kind of putting two and two together here. So he was probably just a simple farmer. It's not likely that he had had a lot of military experience since Israel had enjoyed peace for 80 years. Maybe he had some, but nothing is mentioned. And to be honest, it's probably likely he didn't have any need to be involved in any warfare or any military training of any sort like that. He do, we don't know who his father was. We don't know what tribe he came from. He's just a, a, a farmer. Basically put, he had zero qualifications to be a judge of Israel. He had really nothing about him that made him stand out from the crowd that you or I would say, that guy. Let's get Shamgar to be our judge. Now contrast this to someone like Samson. Samson, of course, we know that God called him from his mother's womb. And God gave Samson supernatural strength. So that there was, there was a kind of an obvious reason there why he became a judge. All right, so any guy that can rip off the gates of a city and carry them up a mountain, that's a pretty tough guy that you want leading your military. Shamgar, on the other hand, is a farmer. Now, by the way, this is not in any way to disparage farmers. I, I believe if I had been born 100 years ago, I probably would have been a farmer. I'm just, that's just kind of how, how I am. I enjoy being outside and working and getting my hands dirty and all those kinds of things. And one thing about farmers in general is farmers have to be pretty tough guys and gals. Because they are out there working hard and they're always, uh, you know, in the sun and in the soil. And uh, so I, I don't mean that to say he was just a farmer. I don't mean that in any disparaging way. But when it comes to qualifications to be a great military leader, he really didn't have those. Now there's some implied context here based on what we know uh, from earlier in the book of Judges that now we've gotten back to a time where Israel has backslidden away from the Lord. And the Philistines have come in and oppressed them and, and taken over. Now it's not explicitly stated here, but when we go back to chapter 2, we read the setup, the introduction to the book of Judges, we find that that's the cycle that we are reading about in the book when, when Israel backslides and, and they begin to worship idols and so God sends a foreign invader in to oppress them until they finally repent and then God delivers them. Twice this cycle has already been uh, described uh, with Othniel and Ehud and now we are in another period of Israel's decline. They're continuing this vicious spiral downward. And this time, they're being oppressed by a group of people known as the Philistines. 
Now the Philistines, this is still very early in Old Testament history, but later uh, they would become even more infamous. Of course, the most infamous Philistine is Goliath. He's the giant that David slew. Uh, but the Philistines were a constant source of irritation for the Israelites. There was always strife and conflict back and forth between them. Now there's another uh, uh, piece of implied context here. And again, we're just kind of, kind of thinking through this logically. Why would he choose to use an ox goad as a weapon? as opposed to, say, a sword or a, or a real spear, something had been created as a weapon. Help me out here. Why do you think he would choose an ox goat? Yeah, okay, more familiar with it, and we will talk about that in just a moment. But somebody over here said, that's what he had. Now, why didn't he have something else? Why didn't he have a sword or a spear, Brother Darrell? That is very, very well could have been the case. Look in Judges chapter 5 again and verse number 8. Now Deborah, remember, she's singing this song. And she mentions in verse 6, Shamgar the son of Anath. Verse 8 says, They chose new gods, then was war in the gates. Was there a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? Now, it's not stated explicitly here, but turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is, I, I know, years and years later, but the same group of people, the Philistines, intentionally disarmed the Israelites to control them and to oppress them. 1 Samuel 13, verse number 19 says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. By the way, that's not talking about John Smith or Sue Smith. That's talking about a blacksmith, someone who works with metal. All right, There was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to, axes and to notice this, sharpen the goads. So based on what Deborah said in her song about there not being a, a, a spear or a shield amongst 40,000, it is very likely that not only had Israel been oppressed by and invaded by the Philistines, they had been disarmed by them. So the reason he used an ox goad is because that's what he had. It's what he had. He was familiar with it because he used it many, many times a day probably as he was working the field. Anytime he needed to uh, drive his oxen. Uh, oxen, I guess, can be pretty stubborn animals and they needed a little bit of encouragement now and then. And so he was very familiar with it. And there came a day where he needed to fight. And so what he did was grab the thing that was closest that he was familiar with and he went and he fought against the Philistines. And God empowered him to use that ox goad to kill 600 Philistines. Think about that number for a second. And we read through these Bible stories and sometimes we read about tens of thousands of people getting killed in a battle or over a hundred thousand people getting killed in a battle. And it's all just numbers to us sometimes. We kind of lose, lose the uh, impact of that. 
So we hear a number like 600 and we think, eh, that's not that big of a number. But wait a second. This is one guy single-handedly taking out 600 Philistines. Sometimes tragedy strikes in our country and people are killed in multiples. If you hear of a, a, of a killing where 5, 10, or 20 people are killed, what do we call that? A mass shooting, a mass killing. Even when it's 5 or 10 or 15 or 20. 600 people. And these are people that he would have had to engage, not necessarily hand-to-hand, but close quarters. Let me come down here just to frighten you a little bit. Caleb, come up here and help me. All right. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to poke Caleb. He's got to live a long time and take care of me when I'm old and infirm. So, <clears throat> All right. Now, here, here's Caleb. He's going to be a Philistine. He doesn't have anything on him right now as a prop, but let's just imagine he has a, a typical weapon of his day would have been a sword and a shield. All right? Now, probably there were some guys with bows and arrows back there launching in things, but if I'm going to kill him, Am I going to do it from back here? Not unless I'm going to throw this thing like a javelin, but once I do that, I don't have any weapon. I don't have any way of defending myself or attacking him. So in order for me to attack him, I've got to get up close. Now, he's going to try and attack me. I can use this to defend myself. I step back, and maybe he's going to block with his, his shield, and there's going to be a little bit of a back and forth here. Okay, this guy was not just standing there going, one, two, three, four. It's not how it happened, all right? So I had to engage this one. What's happening while he's fighting me? What's his buddies doing? They're all coming after me. It's not like in the movies where they take numbers and come one at a time, right? It's like, no, you wait in line. All right, I'm going to kill him first, then I'll deal with you. That's not how it works. So while I'm fighting him, I'm having to defend against these guys, How long would it take a man to take out 600? Let's say that he was just a phenomenal, phenomenal warrior. Just because God gifted him in that way supernaturally. And he could deal with one soldier in as little as 30 seconds. Let's do the math. 600 men, 30 seconds apiece, that's 300 minutes. How many hours is that, Caleb? Five hours, exactly. Good job. Five hours of nonstop fighting. Are you beginning to get the picture here? We see 600, like, okay, yeah, 600. No, 600 with an ox goat, a pointy stick. Thank you, Caleb. You can have a seat. I'll let you play with this later. <laughs> 600 men. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, This is a great story. What's the point? Pun intended. (laughs) Here was a ordinary man using an ordinary tool to do something extraordinary. How? There's only one answer. Through God. 
Remember this verse from Zechariah 4 and verse number 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's the verse we looked at when we talked about Othniel, when it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it was no different with Shamgar. He didn't do this because, you know, he had trained for years in all of the tactics of fighting with an ox goat. He was able to do this because the Lord empowered him to. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. And as we think about the fact that he used a common, ordinary ox goad, it's a wonderful illustration of this, that when you have faith in God, God will use whatever you have to accomplish His will. There's other examples of this in Scripture. Turn to Exodus chapter 4. I might preach a series of messages one day entitled, Sticks in the Bible. Exodus chapter 4 is another example. Exodus 4 and verse number 2. This is when Moses was called of God at the burning bush. The Lord said unto him, What is in thine hand? And he said, A rod, a stick, a staff. Not unlike this ox goad here, right? Notice what the Lord says, verse 3. He said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. Smart guy. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 4, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Moses is being called of God to go back to Egypt and deliver the people of God. He has questions. Who am I supposed to tell them sent me? Are they going to believe me? How is this going to work? And God says to him at this point in in the story, he says, what's in your hand? A rod. Why did Moses have a rod in his hand? Because he was a shepherd. It's part of his job. He had this rod. He would use it walking around just to support himself, but he would use it to tend the sheep, to get them back in line. It was just a tool that he used day in and day out. God said, what do you have? He said, a rod. Nothing special, nothing nothing extraordinary about this rod yet. God says, throw it on the ground. Throws it on the ground and becomes a serpent. That was the rod that Moses later would stretch out over the Red Sea as God would part the Red Sea. It's the rod that he would hold in the air as Israel fought in the valley and God would give victory. It was the rod that became the symbol of God's power, but it was just an ordinary rod. I think of a New Testament example. Turn to um, the book of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6 and verse number 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. 
And Jesus took, took the loaves, <clears throat> and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, notice this phrase, as much as they would. You know this story, the feeding of the 5,000. All they had to start with were five loaves and two fishes. But with five loaves and two fishes, Jesus fed a multitude that day to the point that they, they couldn't eat anymore. But I like how John included the fact that that little lunch belonged to a boy that day. Just a little boy. His mama probably packed him that lunch that morning. He was going out to listen to Jesus. And like all good mamas, she was worried her boy was going to starve to death in the four hours he was going to be gone. So she made him a little lunch with five little loaves of bread and two fish. That way he'd have plenty for lunch and if he didn't make home for supper, he may have a little bit left over. Is there anything extraordinary about five loaves and two fish? That seems pretty plain, doesn't it? But not in the hands of Jesus. Jesus took an ordinary lunch and he turned it into something extraordinary. But in both Moses' case and the little boy, before God did anything great with their ordinary thing, they had to let go of it. Did you catch that? They had to let go of it. They had to surrender it to God. When you surrender something that may seem ordinary, plain, and common to the point of boring, when you surrender it to God, God can do extraordinary things with it. Even an ox goad. So many times we think that in order for God to work, He needs fancy weapons. He needs fancy this and fancy that. Shiny, new Etc., etc. God doesn't need any of that. He will use whatever we have if we will just surrender it to Him. Because to God, it's not about what's in our hand, it's about will we let Him use it and us. And when it comes to ministry, many people think you need fancy, shiny, newest thing to reach the world. You have to attract the lost with your impressive buildings, your praise team that sounds like the most, their favorite pop group, or you need relevant content in your religious pep talks that they sometimes try to call sermons. This is what you need in order to attract people and be successful in the ministry today. We have to impress them with our education and with our eloquence. No. We don't need to do that. We just need to use whatever God puts in our hands and trust God with the result. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, this idea that we've got to impress people and we need the newest and the shiniest and all of these things, it's not new. It's been going on for thousands of years. Paul, he had to deal with this. He had to push back against that philosophy even in his day. And he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said in verse number 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now this is how Paul applied this principle to ministry. He said, I'm not going to come in and try and impress people with my polished speeches and my eloquence and my education. Was he eloquent? Yes, he could be. Was he educated? Absolutely. But that's not what he relied on. He relied on the truth of the gospel to do the work of God, the work of the ministry. He said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was criticized for his plainness. But he said, I want your faith to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. So when we read stories like Shamgar using an ox goad, it is a reminder to us that it's not about the person. He was an unknown. We don't even know where he came from. It's not about the thing that was in his hand. It was a common, ordinary farm tool. It is about the God whom he served and who enabled him to do something extraordinary. Now I want to make a direct tie-in with the spiritual fight that we are in every single day. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Folks, we are in a spiritual war, battling against Satan every single day. And in the spiritual war, we have been given a weapon. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we are to take unto us the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the spiritual fight, this is our weapon right here. But you know, like in Shamgar's day and later in Israel's day, the enemy wants to come in and disarm us. And there are people today that are trying, and unfortunately many Christians are letting them disarm them by saying, you know, the Bible's really not relevant anymore. By saying, you know, you can't convince people by saying the Bible says so, because people don't believe the Bible. And Christians are believing these lies, and instead of relying upon the authority of the Word of God, they're turning to man's wisdom. They're turning to modern psychology. They're turning to uh, this, that, and the other, and abandoning the Word of God. They are dropping the sword. Now, in some respects, the Bible seems pretty plain and ordinary. After all, to look at it, it's just a book like any other book. But see, there is something extraordinary about the Bible. It's not like any other book because it is the very Word of God. And the Bible says of itself that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Lord says that His Word will not return void, but it will accomplish that which He pleases. And it is still true, according to Romans ten seventeen, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We do not need new weapons in the spiritual fight. 
We need to learn how to use the weapon we have better. The problem is not the weapon. The problem is not that the edge has grown dull. The problem is our hand has gotten weak. We don't know how to use it anymore. You know why Shamgar could take an ox goad and wield it for hours on end fighting against an enemy? Because day in and day out, year after year, he had carried this thing around the farm, poking, scraping, beating off a wild dog, getting an apple out of a tree. For years, he had had his hand on the ox goad so that when it came time to take it to the next level, he was ready. He knew the balance of it. I don't know if he... I'm just going to imagine that he's like a lot of guys I know. And when he got bored, maybe he started trying to do like little like karate things with it, you know, spinning it around. But the point is, he was very familiar with it. Did God supernaturally enable him? Absolutely. But it's just like David and his sling. Did God supernaturally enable David? David said so. He said, the Lord will deliver the Philistine into my hand. But did David have some skill with that sling? Sure he did. And folks, when it comes to the spiritual fight we're in, we don't need a new weapon. We don't need a better weapon. The weapon we have is perfect. All we need to do is learn how to use it. 2 Peter 3.18 says, rather 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer. Every man that asketh you a reason of the hope which lieth within you with meekness and fear. We need to be ready to answer for the gospel. How do we do that? By getting in the word of God and letting it get into us. You see, Chamgar was an ordinary guy with an ordinary job, with an ordinary tool. But in the hands of God, he was able to do something extraordinary. Now let me say that I'm a fan of you and I getting all the tools in our toolbox that we can. I believe that if we can get education, we need to get it. If we have talents, we need to develop them. I believe we need to have a broad range of life experiences and many other things to put tools in our toolbox. But when it comes to doing God's will in our life, what matters more than the tools in our toolbox is whether those tools are surrendered to God. And whether or not we are surrendered to God. Because even an ordinary person can do extraordinary things for God if they will just have faith and surrender to Him. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. What's in your hand tonight? You may look at your life and you may think, I don't have anything special. I am just ordinary, plain, common, vanilla as vanilla can be. And you may think to yourself, there's nothing that God can use to do anything great in my life. Can I tell you that is absolutely not true. 
Whatever you have, God can use it and God wants to use it. If you're willing to surrender it to him and have faith. I want to encourage you tonight. That's really the point of this message. Not to sit back and make excuses for why you can't do this and you can't do that. I want to encourage you. Take what you have, surrender it to the Lord, and get in the fight. And if you will fight by faith in God, you will be astounded what God can do through you.